Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Marilyn J. Rusink. She's a professor of plant pathology and environmental microbiology at the Biology Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics, uh, part of the Huck Institute of Life Sciences. Uh, she has her own lab, the Rusink Lab. Uh, her focus is on virus plants and virus-fungus plant interactions and virus evolution and ecology. So, Marilyn, thanks for coming. No problem. Yeah, um, tell me a little bit about your, your background first. What got you into uh, studying viruses and plants? And you know, and then we'll fast forward to present after that. Okay. Well, I started um, in kind of a different trajectory in my life, but I took a microbiology course, and I was introduced to Lambda, the bacteriophage, and was the first virus I'd ever really knew anything about. So... I was so impressed with how it was so clever. This little package of genes in the, in the coat, you know, protein coat. And so I decided to change my career and become a virologist. So I did my PhD in non-human virology, actually, on hepatitis B virus. But I, um, I didn't really want to stay in animal or human research because I felt like plants offered a, an area where you could do a lot more work. It's, the wolves are really easy to come by. You can have, you know, essentially, you can have a thousand genetically identical hosts to your work with, and they're inexpensive, and um, nobody minds when you put them in the blender either. So I just, I just decided that I wanted to make a switch into plant virology, and um, so I studied that for a long time, uh, mostly evolution work, and you can, there's really nice systems in plants where you can do a lot of experimental evolution. And then I got involved in fungal viruses a little later on, and uh, actually right now in my lab, which is kind of downsizing, I'm planning to retire, um, but my lab is only doing one project right now on a fungal virus, and we've kind of been winding up all the other stuff, so... So is there any form of life or any organism that doesn't have a virus? Not as far as I know. I, we have not explored all of life, so we can't say that unequivocally. But there's no known life forms that don't have I guess there's just some maybe that viruses haven't been found. But again, uh, to everyone's knowledge, it looks like so far every form of life has a virus associated with it, right? That's what, that's what I would predict. Yeah, that's amazing. What, what do you think came first in evolution, viruses or cellular life and why? Well, I personally, I think viruses came first, but, you know, that's just speculation. I, we don't have any real evidence, um, but there is a whole hypothesis about the RNA world, which would imply viruses came first, um, although there could have been RNA cells too. But yeah, it's my opinion that viruses are the original replicating forms on the planet, but um, others would disagree. So we don't, you know, without a time machine, we really can't tell. Do you think we'll ever know? Or it's uh, one of those questions that'll be forever unanswered? 
Well, who knows? I, I think maybe we'll have a time machine someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, barring that. Um, I- it's not a question that's easy to answer because, yeah, it, it's just, you know, there are, are people with pretty strong opinions, let's put it that way. But yeah, I've seen that. They I've don't have evidence to say they're right or wrong. Okay. What, what role do you see that, you know, this is a broad question, but what role do you see viruses have played in evolution and adaptation and even speciation? What roles have any? Oh, viruses are Yeah, so... Um, for one thing, 8% of our genome is retroviruses. That's just one kind of viruses. Um, so they've been around with us since the beginning of, of human evolution, for sure. Many of those are shared with other primates, so they can be traced back for a long, long time. Um, there, there are some older than primates. And in fact, there are some that go all the way back to things like they're shared with calicanth, which, is, which are very um, primitive, like, well, they're kind of fossil, they're considered living fossils. So, you know, they've been with us for a long, long time. The roles that they've played in evolution, well, the most obvious roles are with retroviruses because they're in our genomes and there are retroviral genes that are critical for our survival, like the evolution of placenta, placental mammals required a retrovirus. So um, they've been there and been involved certainly in things like speciation. You know, a lot of this is just, we don't have fossil records of viruses themselves because they're not, they're too small and they're not maintained in, you know, stone or things where we get fossil records from. But we do have this sort of paleovirology field where there are, where we look at the viruses that are integrated into genomes and that's kind of a genetic fossil record. So yes, they've been around for a very long time and I guess part of the um, the thing that we have to think about is that, you know, you, we're not really separate from our viruses. So our viruses are part of us. So to say that, you know, it's just, a, you have to get a more holistic view, I think, of things. For example, a human being, what, what is a human being? Well, we are not just human cells. We have lots of bacteria. We have lots of viruses. We have lots of fungi. That's a holobiont. That's a single entity encompasses all of those other things including viruses. Yeah, it's like we have a house with uh, our family and our cousins and their kids and their families. And, you know, we've got a whole community <laughs> living in, our, in us. But it's a little bit, I mean, it, it, a symbiosis is a, is a field of study, you know, that's still actually needs a lot more work in it. But um, this understanding that some entities are more than one species, thats that really started in the mid mid 19th century thinking about that and and um, it's still sometimes a hard concept for people to grab so i i don't really like to think about viruses as if they were separate from their hosts because they're really not interesting okay when i look at my dogs now i you know i think of them as i think about their microbes and their viruses and i see them in a little bit of a different way you know it's just it's weird like this is this is kind of a you know an outside question but you know, since we're composed of all these things, we still feel like one being. It's weird. And how come we have no, I mean, we seem to have no sense of our constituencies and no sense of our makeup that we feel like one creature. Like, you know, any idea to you, have you ever contemplated that, why we feel like we're one thing, but we're not? Well, I don't think many people are actually conscious of all the different human cells they have. So I don't know why they would be conscious of the non-human cells. 
biologically, yeah, we are one big symbiotic holobiont. That holobiont is the word that people use to say, you know, all of the various constituents put together. Um, right, so yeah. I, I, you're not conscious of your lung cells or your heart cells or anything else. So why would you be conscious of your microbes? No, that's true. Yeah. I, it would probably be overwhelming if I was, you know, or if anyone was, maybe that's why. I don't know. Yeah. But, well, very good. We'll, we'll... You're mental. Mentally, you're not conscious. Right, yeah. Well, your body, your immune responses, your, who knows, but many parts of you are, uh, the sort of autonomic um, parts of you are certainly aware. Okay. Well, um, moving into some of the more specific virus questions, Um, you know, everyone tells me, oh, vir virions are non-motile they're just floating along and they're passive and they're you know they don't really do anything until they come into contact with a, a cell so you know if i imagine them and they're like 50 to 100 nanometers just ballpark average and the um the hosts that they that they infect or are part of are huge you know some are bacteria maybe microns some are people you know a meter and a half tall how do they you know, if you think about all all time, I don't know how many infection events there have been. I'll just say, throw out a number like ten to the twentieth. I don't know. You know, how could how could viruses so reliably find their targets and infect when they're so tiny, and supposedly you know incapable of sensing or doing anything? Uh, how do they how do they find their way to the right spot so many times? Well, every virus has a different mechanism for that, and that's one thing that it's not it's difficult. I know not to generalize, but you can't really generalize too much with viruses because they're all different and they all have found different ways to get into their hosts. Um, so, you know, it's not really, it's not really quite like a big sea of viruses all around us. And once in a while they bump into the right um, host cell. They, they have active mechanisms. For example, um, most plant viruses are transmitted by insects. It can be transmitted by fungi and other things like farm machinery, but the, for a plant, um, a plant has a cell wall, and so for a virus to get into a plant cell, it has to make a hole in that cell wall. Insects do that very efficiently, so viruses are moved from one plant to another by insects. And the viruses actually have a lot of, they control that process to some extent, because when they're infecting a plant, they will change the volatile composition of the plant and they will, the plant will start making volatiles that attract the insects to the plant. And then they pick up the virus and move it on to another plant. And they even go so far in some cases, and once an insect has landed on it and starts to feed, they take up the virus. Then the virus will induce the plant to make these anti-feeding compounds to encourage the insect to move off to a new plant. So, so the virus has manipulated that whole system to get itself moved around. And these relationships are very old and often very specific. So there are some viruses that are only transmitted by a few species of aphids, for example. And then there are others that are like generalists and are transmitted by hundreds of species of aphids. But well, that's just one example. Um, but our respiratory viruses, like we're dealing with now with this um, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, they infect respiratory cells. In order to be an airborne virus, you have to be able to infect cells in the respiratory system. So then you just get breathed in, and there you go. You encounter your host cells. Those are two extremely different, but um, 
mm. are important examples of how viruses move around. Do you, do you think that the viruses themselves are completely passive until they, you know, through random motion bump into the right cell? Unless they're, like in the example you gave, specifically injected. But if they're not, if they're just near their targets, um, do you think there's any sensing going on and orientation and movement towards a, uh, you know, the right host cell for them? Or is it a passive at that point? Directed movement like that. No, they don't have a way to do that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you're going to get infected with, we don't really know how many viruses it takes to get infected with this um, SARS-CoV-2. But if we look at something like influenza, you need about 10,000 or so virus particles in, in the tiny droplet that you breathe in. That's what it takes to establish an infection. So most of them fail. Very few of them actually are able to infect cells. And, and the reason that they're successful is just because they make so many hundreds of thousands of progeny virus. So they swamp the system, okay. basically. So, so you think the, the vast numbers of them is what gets them to the, uh, to the end goal, you know, once they're at least in somewhat proximity to uh, the, host, the host cells? Right. So they, they do. In general, viruses need to have a lot of, of individuals in order to have this establish an infection. And it might be that only one virus actually gets into a cell. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I feel like I want to ask you all the questions at once, but we'll, we'll step through them. We're getting there. Um, do you think viruses are alive? You know, why or why not? And, you know, it's just my speculation. I'm, you know, I'm sitting there looking at a tree and I, I'm thinking, okay, if there's a seed that made that tree, and if most of my experience was in seeing seeds and only every so often seeing a tree, I would think maybe trees are like viruses. You know, they're mostly seeds and they're not alive. And when they're in the right conditions, now they're alive, you know? But when I, when I think about virions versus the, you know, the, the, the form of the virus that's inside of a cell, perhaps it's the same thing. Maybe they're contingently alive once they enter a cell. Maybe they're just dormant but they're alive the whole time as a virion, you know, just like a seed is dormant and, you know, becomes active in the right conditions. So with that context, like what's, what's your thought? There are people who think that, in fact, viruses were always assumed to be alive until um, they were first crystallized. So tobacco mosaic virus was the first virus that was crystallized. And, and then people said, oh, well, they make crystals are more like a chemical than a life form. That's where the whole debate started. So that was probably about 40 years or so into the field of biology before this question really arose. Just to put it into some historical context, but um, what, why does it matter whether they're alive or not? Who cares? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The reason why is that if you, um, if, I mean, to me, if you assume that they're not alive, then you'd, you'd assume that they're incapable of certain behaviors or behavior at all. But if you do assume they're alive deliberately, then perhaps maybe your mind would say, oh, okay, well, you know, they, like, they, these are some of the other questions I'm going to ask you. They're, most of them are predicated by, they could be predicated on, you know, if you assume viruses are alive, you'd answer one way. If you assume they're not alive, you'd answer another way. So that's like the overarching reason why I asked, but we'll, that'll come out as we as we go through the questions. I don't make any assumptions. Um, I, and I, I just think it's an, um, not a really relevant, but you know that, I already told you that before. So. Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, so do you, do you believe that viruses have a, uh, 
you know, a group identity. If you look at, um, you know, viruses infecting something, um, it doesn't appear to be that there's just one specific genetic sequence of a given virus. It seems like there's, I guess, what's called quasi-species and different kinds with, you know, different variants. Do you think that um, a virus is able to act in a way where it, it, it knows self versus other? And do you think that, you know, all the quasi-species of a virus, when it infects, kind of act in concert with different abilities? Just like a bee colony, you know, has phenotypically different bees, but they're all still bees and they all act together? I don't think viruses have a sense of self, um, because that's something that requires a higher order of consciousness. And, and I don't really think viruses are conscious. But a quasi-species, you brought up a quasi-species, so let me explain a little bit about what it is. It's a term that comes from physics and not biology, so it's an unfortunate term. It has nothing to do with the biological concepts of species. Um, so a quasi-species is a word that's used frequently for RNA viruses in particular. Some DNA viruses, however, behave this way too. And all it is is that when a virus infects a host and begins to replicate, it makes a lot of mistakes in its replication process. Um, and they're not usually corrected. Some viruses can correct them, some can't. But this generates a very diverse population. And that, but that diverse population within a single host, or perhaps within a single host cell, that is a quasi-species. And it does not act, they do not act as individuals, they act as an entity. The quasi-species is the entity. So they complement each other, some may be defective, some may have different functions in different parts of the genome because of this rapid evolutionary process where they're making so many mistakes in, in their copying of the genome. And so that they do act as a single entity. So it's like it just has a lot of variation of its genes. You, you can, if you know anything about genetics, you know that we generally have a two alleles, sometimes we have more for each gene. Well, you can think of a quasi-species as just an entity that has thousands of alleles. That's essentially what a quasi-species is. So it, it has to be infecting, it's a single replicating population. That's another part of the definition. So you're not going to have, you know, it's in one host, it's in one cell. You don't have a quasi-species spread out among a bunch of hosts. It's a single population. Hmm. Well, if um, if there's a virus and, you know, I know, let's say I'm infected with it and I, I label myself number one and then I infect someone else and they're number two and someone else number three, you know, by the time number 20 gets it, it's passage through 20 different hosts, you know, again, me or whatever species you want. What do you think will be different about the virus that, that goes after number 20? Do you think it would be uh, more commensal, more virulent, less virulent? Uh, what, what changes do you think would occur and why? Um, well, 20 isn't very many, but uh, so probably not much of a change in that small amount of, of transmission. Um, but in general, let's say for longer term infections, you would expect a virus to evolve to be less pathogenic. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of, there's a whole field of, you know, the evolution of virulence that's been pretty extensively studied. I, the hypothesis is that a virus evolves to become less virulent because virulence is generally not an advantage. So a virus only wants to do one thing and that's replicate. That's really the goal of a virus, if it had a goal. Um, it's just to make copies of itself. And if it's making its host so sick that the host dies or even stays home and can't get out and visit its friends, 
that's not an advantage for the virus. And if the, if it kills its host, um, pretty soon it won't have any hosts left to infect. So that would be a really bad thing for it. So in general, you think that viruses probably evolve over time to be less pathogenic. The other thing you have to remember, remember we talked about how it might take 10,000 viruses to infect one cell. Um, so that what that means is that, okay, you have this population of 10,000 viruses that came from a simple original quasi-species, but only if one or two of those or a few of those are going to infect the next host. So there you're going through a population bottleneck. And so there's going to be drift in that virus from host to host because of that bottleneck. Only a few members of the original quasi-species are going to get into the next host. And, and that number can vary a lot. So I, I don't really know that much about the multiplicity of infection for various viruses. I know that it's, it's quite different in different viruses. So some viruses may have a multiplicity of infection of, you know, thousands, and some may have only a few. But that's going to impact that whole process of evolution and adaptation to the host as well. Yeah, um, you know, in some of the examples you gave, it, it, the viruses have like very, very specific ways of being, you know, transmitted between hosts. And um, I don't know if this is an, if there's an analog in plants, but I, when I look at some of the viruses that affect people like, you know, rabies um, or influenza or HPV, it seems like these cells that the virus targets and infects are also the same cells that enable it to spread from there. You know, influenza, my respiratory cells are affected, so I cough and sneeze, and it spreads that way. You know, right. why, why does there appear to be, at least in some cases, this matching of tropism versus method of spread? You know, why wouldn't I get, uh, you know, why I wouldn't mean, H... Matching. I mean, if it doesn't match, you wouldn't, have a, you wouldn't have, be able to establish an infection. Well, what if, you know, what if I have a sexually transmitted disease? Why can't I spread it by coughing or sneezing? Why wouldn't it... Uh, it doesn't infect the respiratory cells. Right. It's just strange that it seems like there's this matching. You know, I, I just wonder why it's uh, maybe it's a just-so story. I don't know. Well, I think what you have to remember is that all these are happenstance relationships. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's an accidental. And then initially, it's a happenstance. The SARS-CoV-2 happens to have this protein that attaches to the AC, the ACE2 receptor in human respiratory cells, right? So that... Um, was a happenstance or perhaps it derived from its previous host, which you don't really know what that was yet. But because of that, now the virus can infect respiratory cells. But if a virus doesn't have a way to infect a respiratory cell, it doesn't matter how many particles of it you have it that are floating around in the air, you're never going to get infected that way. So it depends on what, it all goes together. I mean, this, these evolutionary events didn't happen overnight. These viruses have been around for a very long time. And even SARS-CoV-2, yes, it's only been in humans for a short time, but it's been in whatever its animal host was for probably thousands of years. So, so yeah, they, they have evolved different ways. That, that, you mentioned rabies because rabies, in, at least in some hosts, it, tends to, it does change behavior. So it does a virus that infects the nervous system. And it, it can change behavior to biting, but it does, that's not the only way it changes behavior. Um, in fact, in cattle, when a, when a cow has rabies, they start choking. And so the, the farmer puts his hand down the cow's throat to see if he can figure out why the cow's choking. 
gets a little nick in his hand and gets rabies virus that way. So that's a different kind of behavior that rabies can induce, which also aids in its transmission. Then it's there a are examples of viruses that affect the behavior. We already talked about the ones that change the volatiles in plants. Yeah, I was going to ask you to what level of control uh, does a virus exert over a host cell? You know, it, it, I know it uses cellular machinery to replicate itself, but you know, how can it how can it cause a plant to change the volatiles it expresses to attract insects insects to spread it, or to you know to keep insects away once it reaches a certain point? How could that be? Well, it's just a matter of genetic control. It has some. We don't really know the details of how that works yet. Those are fairly recent studies, um, but uh, the virus has some way of turning on a gene or turning off a gene in the plant and. That's often done by small RNAs. That's their major controllers of um, genes. It's really important in genetic regulation. Um, but we don't know the details of that with that particular system. But nevertheless, they, they are, if it's going to be an advantage, then it'll probably happen. You know, if the virus had no way of, of helping the insects find the infected plant, then its transmission would be pretty poor. But once a virus figures out how to do that, well, it's not that the virus figures out. Once the virus makes something that, I mean, and that's that where the happenstance comes in. So somehow the virus made something that turned on the volatile emissions in this plant. And once that's happened, then all the progeny viruses after that are going to have that feature because it's a huge advantage. So the initial thing that happens is an accident. But if it's an accident that's an advantage, then it becomes predominant. That makes sense? Yeah. So do you think that uh, viruses are able to have cells uh, send out, let's say, specific extracellular vesicles to affect other cells or to get bacteria to send out certain specific plasmids? Um, do, do you think that they're able to, let's say, do a, a quorum sensing and coordinate action by using cellular machinery or bacterial machinery to signal other uh, infected bacteria or cells? Yeah, I'm not really a very um, up-to-date on bacterial physiology, uh, but I do know that viruses, for sure, bacterial viruses affect the, um, the bacterial host in many different ways. Most of the time, they're an advantage for bacteria. So if they're a lysogenic virus, that means they've integrated into the genome of the bacteria, then that provides an immunity so that that bacteria cannot get infected with the lytic form of that virus. It can also, as far as a population of bacteria goes, it can become lytic, in other words, release virus particles that can wipe out competitor bacteria. So that's um, way, a way that it affects the outcome of a, a, virus, of a bacterial population site. But yes, they also can make, they also encode virulence factors. I think you, um, cholera is one example. The, the phage, the cholera phage is actually two of them that produce cholera toxin. And without those phage, cholera cannot invade the human gut. We have a lot of cholera in this country. The, the um, Chesapeake Bay is full of cholera, but we don't have any of the phage. So it's not a cholera that can cause the disease. Um, and there are many other human pathogens. Diphtheria is essentially caused by a bacteriophage in the diphtheria bacterium. Um, so yeah, there are there are lots and lots of examples of that. So it's it is yeah beyond um, again co-opting cellular machinery to produce more of the virus, whatever virus it is. 
um, again, do you think that the, uh, the control over the cellular machinery extends to, again, things such as cell-to-cell uh, -cell communication, whether in bacteria or in plant cells or in human cells? You know, can, again, the, the virus instruct the cell to send out extracellular vesicles that have certain packaging in them? Um, do you think it can use the cell to, again, communicate with other cells and do quorum sensing? You know, how many cells of this type are infected by me, you know? at one time. I can't tell you about quorum sensing. I don't know very much about it. Um, but certainly viruses can induce signals to other cells in plants. We know this happens in plants because, and in fact, there are some recent examples of plants, plant viruses that have many multiple components. They have many different segments of their genome and the, you don't have to actually have every segment of the, of the virus genome in it every cell of the plant. So in other words, this plant cells in a, you know, a little focus of infection can cooperate and share viral um, gene products among those cells. So yeah, definitely things move between. Interesting. Um, why do you think that there's a, a latency period from the time an organism uh, is infected so it shows you know, uh, pathogenicity or problems? Do you think it's just a matter of time that the virus needs to replicate enough and affect yeah. enough cells, or is there other reasons? Well, it's probably mostly to do with the virus get establishing an infection. So if the virus infects like one or two of your cells, um, it's going to take a little time for it to ramp up and infect enough cells so that there are, um, there are symptoms apparent. So, so yeah, it's just a matter of ramping up its replication. Hey, what do you think governs, um, you know, latent versus, uh, you know, lytic behavior or lysogenic versus lytic behavior, you know, versus endogenization. Why would some viruses, let's say, you know, infect and never really seem to cause any problems to a host for months, years, days, lifetime, and, you know, the host encounters stress, and now maybe the virus turns lytic. Why do you think that might happen? Um, oh, well, there could be a lot of different reasons. I mean, uh, again, don't generalize so much because it's probably different for every example you can come up with. So there are um, viruses, I mean, these terms are not very well defined often, latency versus persistence versus acute, you know, all, all these things. Are, I, I've tried to define them in my own systems because they're often used in different ways in different host systems. Um, so there are viruses that are called latent, which means that they don't, there's no obvious effect on the host. It doesn't mean there isn't an effect. Just that we haven't found an effect. Um, and they can convert, but to becoming acute um, in animal systems in particular, plants have persistent viruses that never convert to acute viruses. So um, that's a pretty different system. And in fungi, there are also a lot of, most viruses are what I would call persistent in fungi. And they may have an effect under the right environmental conditions. Um, so sometimes they have very dramatic effects. They can be very beneficial. For example, uh, we studied a virus from Yellowstone National Park that conferred heat tolerance to the plant. So the virus infected a fungus. The fungus colonized the plants. And if you had all three together, they could grow in soil temperatures of over 50 degrees centigrade, which is pretty hot for a plant. Um, and that was, but the virus had to be there. The fungus couldn't do it by itself. So we, we don't know what, how that relationship was established. We have 
looked at a lot of, um, we, it's probably pretty old. That's Yellowstone has been around for about about uh, 600,000 years or so. So wow. you know, when those relationships got established in that timeline, we don't really know. But again, it's almost certainly happenstance. The virus happened to make something that helped confer this thermal tolerance. And then once that happened, then the only plants that could survive were the ones that had the fungus and the virus. So a lot of selection there to keep the virus around. Hmm. Um, if I had a, um, you know, a plant cell or an animal cell or, you know, any, you know, a bacteria and I, I sucked out a bunch of the contents where it was not really functional, but the membrane or the cell wall was still intact. Do you think viruses that do come and fuse and enter, for instance, those kinds, do you think they still would do that? And they would just, or would they stop and sense something's wrong and midway stop uh, infecting? Um, well, I don't know. It depends on what's left. The virus does require certain elements of the cell. Like it has to have um, membranes. Most viruses use membranes for replication machinery. It has to have the protein synthesizing machinery. I mean, the virus infection can't get anywhere without those things. And that's the one thing that all viruses seem to need is the, the ribosomes, the protein synthesis and, and generation of energy by the cell. So if you didn't, you know, if you don't leave anything in the cell, then no, the virus can't infect it. But the virus isn't going to say, oh, this is a bad cell. I'm not going to infect it. I don't think so. I mean, those, the way a virus enters a cell is is very tightly programmed depending on the virus and the, and the host, but it's usually involves cell receptors and most human viruses require a specific receptor on the cell surface. If that's there, the virus will probably get into the cell. Um, but I don't think that, I don't think a virus knows the difference basically. If the receptor's there, then it's there. Yeah, so maybe in the future, if cells can be made with a, you know, the, a faithful membrane or, you know, cell wall, they could be tra traps for viruses. You know, the, the viruses that do fuse and enter would, would do so in no one's home. Now they're stuck. Yeah, I guess that's a possible strategy. I haven't really ever thought about it. Is there a, a one virus, one host cell model, or, or are there some where you need to have multiple viruses that coordinate action to infect the cell or are necessary to infect the cell? Oh yeah, there are lots of examples of that. Um, I know of examples in both plants and fungi where you have to have more than one virus. Sometimes they're called helper viruses. Um, so one virus provides part of the function and the other virus provides another part. Um, and then also the other thing is that there are um, a lot of plant viruses and fungal viruses they have, that have divided genomes. They tend to package each genome segment in a separate virus particle. So you all, those are kind of like individual, you know, components of the same virus, but you have to have, you know, if you have four or five different components, they all have to get into the same cell in order to establish an infection. Um, so. Which virus does that? What's, what's the specifics of that example? Well, let's see, cucumber mosaic virus has three particles. Some of the nanoviruses have eight to 10 particles. Uh, those are small DNA viruses that I don't know a lot about, but, um, and that, yeah, they're, they're, so between, from two to 10 is what, about the range of number of particles, and there may be some others that are a little more, but um, many, many viruses of plants are like that, with, and presumably that's a strategy that they, that evolved because plant viruses in general are very small, and 
except for alveviruses, all other plant viruses are very small. And, and the reason we think that they're so small is because they have to move between the plant cells through these very restricted openings. Um, so that may be why they require like three virus particles to make uh, the full complement of the genome. That allows them to stay really small. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, in the case of a plant virus that does have multiple virus particles that each contain part of the whole payload, is there an order in which they affect, infect? Do they all affect at the same time? Like, does one arrive and then it waits for others? Like, what's known? Uh, as far as we know, they probably all have to get there around the same time. They're not going to, you know, the infection, infection isn't going to go very far without all of them. So probably you get multiples of each. I mean, it's, a, it's very unlikely that you would just get exactly three of the, you know, one of each of the three different particles, for example into a cell, you'd have multiples of some of them just by chance. So oh, okay. that, there are also some other very interesting um, systems. Like there's a, a recently described virus in fungi where um, you they, there's two very different viruses that are dependent on each other um, for infection. So you, sometimes in those cases, you could have one virus like you could have virus A without virus B, but you can't have virus B without virus A. Um, and, and some of those, if we look at the genomes of viruses, we can see that those kind of interactions probably happened in their evolutionary history quite a bit. And then some parts were lost to create a new virus that just had the essential parts. There's, a, there's actually a really good example of that in, in plants um, where there are it used to be called PE Nation mosaic virus, and now I think it's called there are two different viruses. But essentially, that were that was that's an example where you have two separate viruses, but they have to co-infect, and one of them provides the the um, movement protein for the other one, and so it can move into different parts of the host. Um, so it's it's a ludio of, in the family called the ludioviruses, which normally only infect the phloem of plants, you know, the vasculature of the plants, but because this virus has the other virus with it, they, this can infect all of the plant tissue, all of the musical cells. And what. So, um, yeah, they, and I would assume that if we could take a time machine forward now, we probably wouldn't be able to find that virus in the future. We would just find one where all the extra redundant parts had been lost. So and some viruses um, will infect, and then I guess they prevent super infection and then you have examples of ones that need other viruses in order to complete the infection mm -hmm. well super infection usually refers to the same virus so for example there are lots of examples of this although i have never studied any of them myself but when if, for example if you're, you have a cell that's infected with virus a it's not very likely that it will prevent infection by virus b but it will prevent infection by other virus a strains um, so, but, you know, you see mixed infections in all kinds of things. There can be, there's a phenomenon that's called viral interference. Um, we don't, it's not really very well studied. In some cases, it's pretty well studied, but, um, you know, so sometimes if you have a viral infection, it will inhibit another virus infection. And part of that might also just be, for example, if you have influenza virus, your innate immune response is going to be kicked into high gear, and that might prevent infection by any other virus at that point. So that's a different thing at the cellular level. At the cellular level, 
mixed infections are not uncommon, but usually you, if you have a particular virus in the cell, it may exclude other members of that same virus. That's true. Yeah, there's so many um, coincident factors. It may be impossible to pick that apart inside of a living organism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. And, you know, they really frown on you doing experiments on humans. And please don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I'm just joking. It's not, the sad truth is it's been done quite a lot. Human experiments have been done quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Um, you think, uh, you know, if you consider, I don't know, plants or bacteria or people, um, does their phagome or virome, do you think, really uh, impact their immunity? Is it part of their immunity, or what, what do you think the relationship is there? Oh, certainly, that's part of it. Um, and there have been some nice studies done, not in, we sort of extrapolate things to humans when we find them in other animals. But, um, for example, mucous membranes are um, often covered with bacteriophage from, our, from the microbiome of the organism. And, of course, mucous membranes are places where we have entry into the organism. And so it's thought that those are there to provide the first line of defense so that if an incoming bacteria is coming through this fastest mucous membrane, the, the phage that are there will attack it. Um, so that's kind of like a, another level of immunity that viruses can provide. Um, mm. Yeah, so, and they, they are all, we just don't know all of the interactions. You know, the whole idea of the virome is fairly recent. And there, I think we may have talked about this before, I can't remember. But, you know, there's a lot of people who think viruses are all bad and evil. And that's uh, sadly misinformed. They're sadly misinformed. So most viruses are actually beneficial or commensal. The pathogens are the rare viruses, but the... They're the ones that everybody studies. Yeah, no, that's true. I guess one really way out question, but, you know, if you were to, you know how they use like AI for drug discovery and they're, you know, they're trying to find drugs that will, you know, fit this receptor or how this protein folds, et cetera. Um, right. Do you think there would be a way to use viruses because of the, uh, you know, how fast some of them can, can mutate to explore, you know, some kind of biological information space? Um, you know, put them in with a, a given host cell and, you know, put the host cell under different stresses and see if the viruses uh, mutate and now are able to enter when they couldn't enter before or vice versa. Do you think they could be used in such a way? Oh, sure. I, I think that's actually quite possible. And it, it's actually something I wanted to do, some experiments of just to try to get a virus to evolve to infect a different kind of host, for example. Um, I just never got around to just we all have lots of ideas that we never can actually bring to fruition. But um, I, I think it's very possible that, you know, vi- the evolutionary capacity of viruses is very rarely appreciated. So I'll tell you an experiment I did in my lab. We were using a, a satellite RNA. It's a small parasitic RNA that sometimes are, they are replicated by plant viruses. And in this system, I could get 10... In 10 days, I could get 2% of the nucleotides to change just by changing the helper virus. So changing, I changed the environment of that small parasitic RNA, which is replicated by a viral polymerase, and 2% of the nucleotides changed in 10 days. And that's pretty phenomenal because that puts it 
that's like the difference between our genes and chimpanzees' genes, you know. That's a pretty big leap. Mm. And that happened in 10 days. So I just tell you that to illustrate how rapidly viruses can evolve under the right selection pressure because they have that huge mutational capacity. So yes, I think this could be exploited more. Okay. Well, very good. Um, any last thoughts that you want to share? Um, you know, things in, in virology that just, I mean, is there anything that's like astounded you that you've never had time to really investigate more fully or, or simply oh. that you just, you just couldn't believe that you saw this in, you know, in viral behavior? <laughs> there are many things I wish I had time to investigate. That's for, for sure. I don't think any of us ever get to do all the things we have ideas for. Um, but I guess my last message would be, I really hope that people begin to appreciate the value of viruses, how important they've been to the evolution of life on Earth, and how many of them are beneficial, and how we need to understand that beneficial nature of viruses better. Um, and that's where viruses could likely be exploited, is just understanding how that kind of thing works. Um, yeah, so that's my last word. Let's go for the good viruses. We need a t-shirt that says, have you hugged your commensal viruses today? <laughs> that might be good. So. Yeah. Well, very good. Marilyn, what's the best way? You said you're winding down, you're, you're getting closer to retirement, but for yeah. interested folks, how can they find out more about you? Where can they go? Um, well, I do still have a website, rusinglab.com. Not sure how much longer I'm going to maintain that, but uh, to be honest, with you, a Google search with my name will get you lots of information. And we are still writing okay. up publishing papers, so excellent. Ongoing for a while. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Good luck with the book. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.